Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, episode 54, Anna and his children. Following Penda's attack in 635, East Anglia became a pawn in the emerging Cold War between Mercia and Northumbria. Keen to check the growing power of the Midlands Kingdom, Oswald of Northumbria was eager to support a new ruler in East Anglia who might manage to check Penda's obvious ambitions for overlordship of southern England. His gaze soon settled on a nephew of Radwald by the name of Anna, or sometimes Onna in the written material. A son of Radwald's brother Eni, Anna likely came to the attention of anti-Mercian agents because there was no direct heir to Radwald left to claim the throne. Thus, any member of the Wolfingas dynasty would do, so long as they could be relied on to oppose Penda. Not much is known about Anna's life before he became king. Tradition holds that in the 630s, he was based at a royal site near the Suffolk village of Exning, since it was here, in this decade, that his most famous child, Athelthrith, was born and reputedly baptised. Exning was a site of great strategic importance to East Anglia, it's being located close to the post-Roman earthwork called Devil's Dyke, which effectively controlled movement across a stretch of land between the watery fens and the headwaters of the river Stour. Archaeological finds at a nearby cemetery indicate that Exning grew fairly wealthy from its location, which would allow for it to regulate trade between East Anglia and her neighbours. Given that Anna was likely based near this frontier of the kingdom, it seems plausible that he was present at the battle in 635, at which Siobert and Edrich were killed. Exning too, doubtless would have made a tempting target for Mercian raiders. Probably then, Anna was all too familiar with the Mercians and their fury. This experience and the zeal it probably inspired in him is likely what made Anna an ideal candidate to assume the throne of East Anglia after Edrich's death. When precisely Anna became king is not clear. The 12th century Liber Eliensis, which discusses Anna's life briefly as a prelude to the lives of his saintly daughters, implies that he became king in 635. The reliability of this is unclear, though. 
Bede doesn't tell us when Anna became king, only that he succeeded Edrich and Siobert. He must have been king by 645, since it was in that year that Kenwal, king of the Gawissa, was driven into exile at Anna's court after repudiating his wife, the sister of Penda, thereby causing Penda to invade his kingdom. It is chiefly for his religious commitments that Anna is remembered in the primary evidence. It was while Kenwal was residing with Anna that the Gawissan reputedly embraced Christianity. Anna was also the patron of the monastery at Knobherresburg, which was founded by the missionary Ferse during the reign of Siobet. These actions align well with the image of Anna presented by Bede, which shows the king as an intensely pious man. On the more secular front, in an attempt to build an anti-Mercian alliance, Anna arranged tactical marriages between several of his daughters. His daughter Seaxbur he married to King Eorkenbert of Kent, while in 651 he also strengthened his control over Ely and the western part of East Anglia by marrying another of his daughters, Athelthrith, to King Tondbergt of the South Girwa, a small tribal group located in the Fens. This alliance that Anna was trying to build, though, was largely ineffective. In 651, Penda launched an invasion of East Anglia and set his sights on Knorperersburg. Anna and his soldiers quickly rushed to defend the monastery, thereby giving the monks time to flee to safety, but the battle was a rout, and the East Anglians were decisively defeated. Following this, Anna was forced into a period of exile, in which it is unclear what occurred in East Anglia. Possibly a Mercian puppet, or some other ambitious noble took power, while Anna probably wandered in the wilderness. What we do know is that by 654, Anna was back in East Anglia and ready to face off again against the Mercians. It is in that year that Penda again launched a raid into East Anglian territory, and this time met Anna's army at Bullcamp in Suffolk. Both Anna and his son Yeomin were killed in the ensuing battle. It is believed that Anna's and Yeomin's bodies were removed to the nearby village of Blytheborough and buried in a church there. Although the church itself is now lost, the discovery of an ornate whalebone diptych or writing tablet, it's not really clear which it is, dating to the 8th century, suggests that Blytheborough hosted a church or a monastery at that time which attracted wealthy patronage. This may have been in part due to its housing the remains of Anna and his son, the latter of whom was swiftly venerated as a saint in the Anglo-Saxon church. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. 
Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Hello listeners, I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm deeply grateful to every one of you who listens, and if you're enjoying this podcast, I'd like to request that you leave a rating or a review on whatever podcast provider you're using to listen to this. Likewise, if you can share this podcast on social media, or like and subscribe to the YouTube channel, that is also extremely helpful in getting the word out about what I'm trying to do here. Also, if you're able, giving some money every month over on Patreon is also extremely helpful in allowing me to continue to work on this podcast. By doing so, you gain access to a bunch of bonus material, like bonus episodes, uh, transcripts, that kind of thing, and all for just a few dollars a month. And speaking of patrons, I want to say thank you to Stephen Monty, who just became a patron. I hope you're enjoying the new material you have access to. It wasn't just Yermin. In fact, all of Anna's children later became saints. The most famous is, as I mentioned, Athelthrith, who in 673 founded the Abbey of Ely and served as its first abbess. Ely was, for a long time, one of the wealthiest and most influential monasteries in England. The later hagiographies of Athelthrit's life place a very high emphasis on her virginity. Hagiographers claimed that she took a very early vow of celibacy, even before her marriage to Tondbert. They agree that he was generally respective of her wishes, although the same could not be said for her second husband. You see, after Tondbert died in 655, Athelthrith enjoyed a few years of quiet before being remarried by her uncle to the young king Edgefrith of Northumbria. By this time, probably under the influence of her spiritual advisor Wilfrid, Athelthrith decided to become a nun. The teenage king was unhappy with this and took the opportunity to begin his famous feud with Wilfrid. By 672, Edgefrith was becoming less patient with his wife, and began demanding that she give up her virginity to him. In fear of what he might do, Athelthrith, we're told, fled south with two nuns, and took refuge on the island of Ely, where she was successfully able to evade Edgefrith's men, before, in 673, founding the monastery, at which point it became much more difficult for Edgefrith to forcibly remove her. Ely Abbey 
is an example of a phenomenon unique to early Anglo-Saxon England, where that is the double monastery. These were monasteries which housed both monks and nuns, but which were headed by abbesses rather than abbots. The men and the women didn't mix, but the fact that they lived in such close proximity under the, the spiritual authority of a woman made these monasteries somewhat scandalous to later Anglo-Saxon monks. These later monks didn't repudiate the saintly founders of such houses, such as Athelthreth, but they did firmly enforce a total separation of monks and nuns into distinct communities. As one of England's most prominent royal abbesses at the time, Athelthreth attracted a great deal of patronage and quickly earned a reputation for holiness. After her death in 679, it quickly became believed that she was in fact a saint. She was succeeded in the role of Abbess of Ely by her sister Seaxbur, who returned to East Anglia following the death of her husband Eochenbert. It was Seaxbur who, in the 690s, claimed that Athelthrit's body had not decayed in the tomb, a common claim made of saints, and thus oversaw the transition of her relics to a new marble coffin in Ely Abbey itself. This translation of relics was performed without the agreement of Seaxbur's bishop, a sign of how powerful or how confident she was in her own power she'd become. But because the cult of Athelthrith had by then become so popular among the local community, there wasn't very much the bishop could do about it. By the time of his writing in 731, by the time of his writing in 731, Athelthrith's cult had grown to such a point that even Bede regarded her as an extremely prominent saint, and as a great model of both virginity and piety. Indeed, it was partly through Bede's writing about her that her influence was able to survive and flourish all the way up to 1066, even though Ely Abbey itself was destroyed by Vikings in the 9th century. Seaxbur herself eventually also became a saint, although seemingly her cult wasn't yet established by 731, since Bede doesn't make any reference to it. Anna's other daughter, Athelbur, was herself also a saint, but this time with a cult based in Francia. During her father's reign, she had been sent to the monastery of Farmoutier for her education, and she made the decision to remain in that monastery rather than return to England. She proceeded to live as a nun there until her death in the mid-660s. After her death, she began to be venerated as a saint by the local community for her work in building and expanding the monastery. There is also one final potential saintly child of Anna, named Wichtbur, but this is hotly contested. Bede doesn't mention a fifth child of Anna with this name, and since his information about Anna's family is otherwise very detailed, this seems somewhat suspicious. Her connection to Anna also only appears in the written record in the 10th century, when the community that she founded, Dirham, had come under the control of the Ely community. It is speculated, then, that the connection to Anna is a product of later myth-making, reflecting Ely's gaining control of Dirham, particularly since Ely gained control of Dirham through, essentially, theft of Whitbur's relics. It is likely that the story of her connection to Anna, and thus to Athelthrith, was created so as to smooth over the more unsavoury aspects 
of exactly how Dirham came to be under Ely's control. On top of all this, the date of Whitburr's death in 734 is extremely late for a daughter of Anna. None of his other children lived to see the 700s, so the chances of even his youngest surviving to the middle of that century seems somewhat questionable. However, it is now tradition that Whitburr was a daughter of Anna, so it would be remiss of me not to at least mention her. Plus, she allows me to tell the story of how Dirham got its name, which I for one find quite entertaining. It goes that after her father's death in 654, Whitburr established a convent at Dirham. One day, when the labourers were at work building the church, Whitburr discovered that she had only dry bread to feed them with. Anxious to give the men a more nutritious meal, she prayed to the Virgin Mary for help, and was told to send her maids to a local well each morning. There they found two wild does, who were so gentle that they could be milked. The labourers then were given fresh does milk to drink, and it is because of this that the convent and the settlement that developed around it were called Dirham. According to the story, a local official didn't approve of any of this, and so he decided to hunt down the does with his dogs to prevent them from being milked anymore. In return, he was thrown from his horse and his neck broken in what the story assures us was an act of divine justice on behalf of Anna's fifth saintly child. King Anna's legacy is in no small part cemented by the reputation of his children. His personal piety likely informed theirs, and this, along with the connections they enjoyed on account of their paternity, helps them to become prominent spiritual figures in Anglo-Saxon England. Athelthrith especially enjoyed a renaissance and relevance in the later 10th century, which, by extension, invited renewed interest in her father, thereby establishing his position as a prominent king of early Anglo-Saxon England, even if his actual reign is not documented with any kind of detail, shall we say. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.